It's one of the reasons why our ancestors survived is because of the ability to burn body fat and have that liver produce ketones so they could stay focused and alert to hunt and kill. If it wasn't for that, we probably wouldn't exist. So when I hear people say keto stupid, that's like saying, you know, a metabolic process is stupid and it's not. Hello, everybody. You are listening to or watching Chatting with Candace. I'm your host, Candace Horback. Before we get started, we're going to start off how we usually do. I'm going to remind you to hit like and subscribe. So if you haven't done that, make sure that you click those buttons so you don't miss a single episode and you get notified anytime we have some new content. We are going to do some coffee shout outs. So for everyone that bought some cups of coffee since I recorded last. I want to say thank you so much to Keith and to Roger two times. Thank you so much for those cups of coffee. All of it goes back into the podcast. So I really sincerely appreciate all of the support. And if you want to contribute to the podcast, you can go to chattingwithcandice.com and click that link that says buy me a coffee. I'm also on Locals or Patreon. Both of those platforms get early access to episodes and you get to participate before anyone else knows who's coming on. And you can ask any of your questions and hopefully Hopefully, I will be able to get to them during the conversation. Last little bit is we have some sponsors and affiliates listed below. These are products or programs that I've personally used and believe in. So that is another great way to uh, check out the podcast. We just added a new skincare line that I just started and it actually reverses the age of your skin, which I'm really excited because I want to look like I'm in my 20s again. So let's all do that together. Save 20 bucks, buy a bundle, and we will stay youthful for as long as we possibly can. This week, we have the incredible Ben Azadi joining the podcast. Ben is the host of the Keto Camp podcast. He's also the founder of Keto Camp. He is the best-selling author of four books, and he is one of today's leading educators on ketosis, intermittent fasting, and ancient healing modalities. Please help me welcome the incredible Ben Azadi. Ben, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. It has been a minute since I was on yours. It's really good to see you. Good to see you again. I love your podcast. Love what you're doing. It's an honor to be here on your show today. Yeah, you as well. I, um, I've i been watching a lot of interviews where you were the guest because I always find it it's kind of tricky to get a host on as a guest. I don't know if you have a similar like kind of like awkward dance that you have to do as well when it comes to them because they talk to so many experts and you talk to so many experts. So you're this vessel of so much knowledge. It's like, where do you even start? Because you you just are hopefully retaining a ton of information and constantly learning, you know, every single day. So it's like, well, how how do you start that spigot? Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, that's one of the benefits of being a podcast host, as you know, you get all these amazing guests and there's different topics and a lot of it could be contradicting, right? So it's like this smart person said, this is the way to do it. This person said it's the other way. So it's like our job to kind of like synthesize that and see what actually we think is best when there's always common themes as well. So yeah, and I love being a guest as well. So it's it's a combination of doing both. So I'm glad to be a guest today. Now you're the host today. I know, pressure's on me today. <laughs> you get to relax. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about, you can have professionals on that have a lot of education and information and totally different opinions on the subject matter and different angles. And then you also have to take into account 
how different each of our bodies are, especially when we're talking about health, diet, nutrition, really anything, but just specifically to start off in the nutrition and diet and wellness space, how different we all are. So when you see blanket statements like like gluten is bad for everyone, well, you're like, well, maybe not everybody or maybe not all types of gluten and like every type of grain. I guess where I wanted to start with um, was when, inf- let's start with inflammation because um, that's top of my mind right now. So I've been back and forth dealing with some thyroid issues, and I'm actually in a really great place right now. But um, during that journey over the last two months or so, I did, do you know the ELISA blood test? Are you familiar with that? The food allergy test? Yeah, it, it does yes. It does food, but it also does, um, like gasoline was on there and patrol, like uh, different kinds of dyes. Like it tests all sorts of so stuff. Like heavy it's, metals and toxins. and Yeah. And it's like a top-down approach as to like where inflammation is coming in your body. So I did that and I got the results back and I was shocked. And I was shocked in a way that probably a lot of people are not going to be expecting. So gluten was not causing inflammation according to this test. Seed oils were not causing inflammation according to this test. Wow. I know. I again, stunned. Um, Gasoline came up. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll just have my husband go take the car to fill up and I'll just like avoid that. Um, Green dye, yellow dye, egg yolks, carrots. And I think that was it. So like super random. I never would have guessed like I couldn't have carrots and I put I eat eggs every single day. So that was devastating to me because I actually I am cutting out the things that it's telling me to cut out for like six months and then retest. But when I saw that seed oils weren't having an inflammatory response, it's like I wonder what the carnivore community and like that part of the Internet would say right now, because that's one of the talking points is seed oils are killing us. Yeah, it is actually. So I would be curious with the test that you did. Mm -hmm. Elias, you said. What was that? What was it called? Elias test? It's Yeah, I think it's E-L-I-S-A. I'll link it below for everyone that's listening. Um, it's super expensive if it doesn't go through insurance. I think I paid like $1,700 for it. Oh, wow. Was it a blood test? Yeah, like a, a blood prick? test. Okay. So it, tons, of, tons of vials. It was Got it. huge. So it was looking like, like different antibodies and comparing it to different foods and then seeing if you have a response to it. Yeah, that is interesting. I, I mean, there are other tests that you could add to that. Not to like, <laughs> you already spent so much money on that test, but there is one test when it comes to inflammation. This test is 50 times more accurate than any blood test, specifically at the cell membrane inflammation. So I'm just going to explain the different types of inflammation yeah. and then I'll explain the test and how it compares to your test. So there's two types in general inflammation out there. So there's acute inflammation. So for example, if I played basketball, which I play all the time, and maybe I sprained my ankle, my ankle would swell up. My, my innate intelligence is sending inflammation to that area to heal it. So that's short term. And that's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. So I let my body do its thing. So that's acute inflammation. That's not necessarily the bad thing. Then there's chronic low-grade inflammation, which is leading to all these diseases and symptoms out there. And that's when our cell membrane is actually inflamed. So that's cell membrane inflammation. There's about 70 trillion cells inside of the body. And the intelligence is in that cell membrane. So it's a, this lipid fatty layer that protects your DNA, protects your cells. And when that's inflamed, then those receptor sites that are integrated into those cells don't hear the message, right? So your hormones can't get in as efficiently, nutrients, minerals, et cetera. And then you have all these good things kind of pooling outside of the cell. They're not able to get in. And then you have all these toxins being built up. That's not able to get get, get out of the cell. So good things can't get in. Bad things can't get out. Now, 
the only way, the most accurate way to test for the membrane inflammation is actually a urine test. It's called the meta-oxy test. And it's 50 times uh, more accurate than any, any blood test, including the one you did. I'm not saying the one you did is not a good test. I'm just saying when we're looking specifically at membrane inflammation, we see that being 50 times more accurate. And that's where you could correlate the seed oils. Because mm. uh, to your point, there's even a lot of studies looking at blood inflammatory markers with people taking seed oils, and there's not really a change. And that's how a lot of people kind of argue the seed oil case. But seed oils, it's the long-term effect of seed oils. But with this meta-oxy test, you can see if that membrane's inflamed because that's where seed oils go and get gunked up there. So I would add that test into the mix. And it's affordable. It's less than 100 bucks for that test as well. So does it say what's causing the inflammation or it's just your general state of inflammation? Yeah. Unfortunately, it doesn't sh show you what's causing it, right? So you would have to kind of do an assessment and then maybe do a retest every 60 days. So when you, you the test you do at home, it's very easy to do. You, you urinate in a little vial and mm -hmm. then that vial turns a certain color. The darker the shade, you compare it to like the chart the more cell inflammation you have. So it gives you an idea of how much inflammation you have, but it doesn't give you the cause. So that's where it's different from the test that you talked that you did. Oh, so you get the results right there though. Yeah, you get it less than two minutes. Oh, yep. that's awesome. Yeah, I that's the worst part is the waiting. The ELISA test <laughs> took like three weeks, or three or four weeks to get back. And I was like, come yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. In the meantime, you were having your eggs, you were still putting gasoline in your car. Yeah, like, <laughs> I was doing all these things that my body was like, please stop. <laughs> I'm hoping so that the eggs curious. come back and like, I, and I can have those again because that is just, it's a massive food to cut out. Oh yeah. You, you would be, it'll change in the future. Like, you know, the gut microbiome changes so much. So I would be curious to hear like when you retest, are eggs safe now for you? So different things will change over time for sure. The gut microbiome stuff is really fascinating. And I love that that's getting a lot of attention right now. I've seen it on some really big podcasts and it seems to get, be getting a lot more mainstream because there's this very lazy way to argue when it comes to weight loss, which is just like calories in, calories out, and that's it. And there's nothing else that matters. And you're like, this is bogus. Like there's so many other things. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the study, but they took obese mice and they did a fecal transplant from the obese mice to these lean mice. And these lean mice didn't change anything. They were still eating the healthy foods. They were still at, like, you know, had the access to activities, but because their microbiome shifted so drastically, they couldn't. Uh, they couldn't shed the weight. They just were packing on fat. So it's, yeah, that's rats, you know what I mean? And there's going to be a little bit of variation when it comes to people, but it does say that the microbiome does have a major role when it comes to weight loss. So I love that more people are approaching with the topic of weight loss with a little bit more nuance and not this mm -hmm. like just stop putting food in your mouth. Oh yeah, right on. Uh, Candice, like 100% agree with you. I'm so sick and tired of the calories in versus calories out people out there. I mean, I used to be one of them for so many years and I realized I was doing my audience, my community a big disservice. It's interesting. Nobody goes from teaching people to count calories to seeing the truth and then going to more of a hormone approach or a gut microbiome approach and then going back to teaching people to cut calories. It never <laughs> happens that way, right? Mm -hmm. um, so to your point, yeah, that study is very interesting. And there's other studies out there that show in mice two identically genetically identical mice, meaning like if obesity was a genetic disease, a genetic problem, this would like totally destroy that myth because it is a myth. But two mice, same genetics. One mice was introduced to BPA, which as we know is bi biphenyl A, it's a toxin in a lot of plastics. And the other mouse was not introduced to any toxin. So the one that was introduced to BPA became obese and had a shorter lifespan 
the one that was not introduced to this toxin was skinny and lean and healthy. Whoa. Same genes, but the toxin was the difference there. It's really about that environmental trigger. And the same thing goes to your point with the gut microbiome. It is uh, so important because most people have leaky gut. They have some sort of gut dysbiosis and it take, and, and leaky gut leads to autoimmune disease. And typically autoimmune disease is not diagnosed for like 15 to 20 years if it, it ever is diagnosed. Wow. But in the meantime, we have all these people who are having these digestive issues thinking that it's normal. It's not normal. It might be common, but it's not normal. So having like gas and acid reflux, bloating, these are all symptoms, but they're also really good things. It's your innate intelligence giving you clues that something is out of homeostasis. So the average person goes to their doctor and says, doc, I have acid reflux. I'm bloated. I feel puffy. I have all these symptoms and the doctor's listening. And the doctor's like, no worries. Here is a prescription for an antacid, anti-flatulence, and five other medication. Meanwhile, that patient, for example, might have went out last night and had pigged out two slices of pizza, had all this beer. They totally stuffed themselves. So, of course, they have symptoms. But if that doctor would have just asked, what did you eat? Instead of writing five prescriptions, the doctor could have just been like, oh, just don't eat that again. The body was having these symptoms as a gift for you to see your check engine light. Something mm -hmm. was out of homeostasis. So that's the difference between you know somebody who's working on upstream stressors like the gut microbiome versus somebody who's chasing symptoms downstream. What's so interesting too is if you talk to an honest doctor, they'll tell you that throughout their entire medical education, they had one day, like one six-hour yeah. class on nutrition. So and, and they'll be astonished and think that there needs to be some kind of reform. And then you have these other doctors that just have blinders on and they think that that's sufficient. And the reason that they only did the six hours is because it's not important. Like when I was um, recently doing a checkup, my doctor for my thyroid, so my endocrinologist was like, well, we don't really know why this, that, or the other is showing up. We don't know what causes your antibodies to flare up. But we do know that if you just cut out a lot of animal fat and eat really lean, it should help. And I'm like, oh my God. I was like, <laughs> even the most recent research from Harvard is saying that that's not true. Like they're uh. saying to increase animal fat and even suggesting full-blown carnivore for some people if the severity of the autoimmune disorder is that to that level. So I'm like, you're not even close to up to date when it comes to nutrition. And I'm just a lay person. Like, how do I know this? And you don't know this. This is mind boggling. Oh my gosh. You're so right. That is ridiculous carnivore is tremendous, to your point, it's tremendous for autoimmune conditions. I've had thousands of students come through my Keto Camp Academy, and a lot of them have autoimmune disease. And that could vary from like uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis or um, arthritis or lupus or psoriasis. I mean, there's 100 plus autoimmune conditions out there. And we use carnivore short term. I'm not a, you know telling you you have to do carnivore forever, but short, just like keto, short term. And their conditions improve significantly because what it does for the gut microbiome and the fact that this doctor told you do less of that when we know that's been proven to actually help specifically with autoimmune, it just baffles me too. We do live in a time where the average person who's listening to these podcasts and, and listening to these discussions knows more about nutrition than the doctor that has been that has gone to medical school, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Hey, everyone, this is new. So we are taking a quick break for a couple of sponsors. How exciting is that, that we have a couple sponsors for the podcast? So this is new. Please don't skip it. Just listen. It's cool stuff, I promise. So my first one is a small company called Ragnar's Rocks, and I'll make sure I have the link below 
as you know, I love crystals and I get made fun of for it all of the time, but I'm, I'm not going to change my ways and I'm going to stand by it. I truly believe in them and I think that they're beautiful. So sue me. But he sent me, I mean, how incredible is that? He sent me this beautiful amethyst. I've got this really cute rose quartz skull. All of this is on my table. You can't see, but when I start doing two cameras, you'll be able to see my little setup. And this cute little crystal Buddha. How adorable is he? Um, I've, these bracelets are from there. I mean, I was really stoked to have him as a sponsor because this is right up my alley. So if you're into any crystals or you just want to check out the website, it's ragnarsrocks.com and um, I'll link that below. And the last affiliate, last sponsor, please don't skip. This one's a good one. So we all know the benefits of fasting. Well, my husband and I have used this company, Prolon, actually a couple of times. So I was really excited that they wanted to be an affiliate of the podcast. So if you want to try Prolon, it's a fasting mimicking diet. So you get all the benefits of a water fast and it's a lot easier because you get this delicious food instead of having to completely eat nothing. So you can try Prolon for $150 with the code Candice. Some of the claims for, and I mean, I say claims, but I'm going off of a script, guys. 60% of people that completed the fast had better energy, mental clarity, and focus. You'll definitely shed some LBs. I felt a ton lighter after doing it. It's cool to do difficult stuff, and obviously fasting is not easy, so it's kind of cool to see how you can kind of push it and get through something that you thought you might not be able to do. It's a lot easier than just doing a water cleanse. Um, and again, like you, I think the average here, yeah, People lose an average of 5.7 pounds and 1.6 inches off of their waistline. So as soon as I'm done breastfeeding, I'm doing one of these. And Eric's supposed to be starting anytime now. So we'll see when he decides to start. So I'll link that below. Again, if you want to try Prolon, you can try it for 150 bucks. Use code Candice. And let's return to the episode. Yeah, so I heard you on one of your podcasts. You were talking about your own autoimmune issues. Mm -hmm. Can we get into that? Like, So like, I guess what... What was your diagnosis and then what have you noticed that has been helpful for that? Yeah, so I have Raynaud's. Raynaud's is a syndrome. It's an autoimmune condition. And, you know, my story, of course, is like 24 years, first 24 years of my life, eating nothing but fast food, doing drugs, playing video games. I was really unhealthy growing up. And that triggered all, all these bad genes because genes are like light switches, right? We could turn them on and turn them off. So mm -hmm. I triggered these bad genes from my lifestyle decisions. So autoimmune was one of those genes and it was Raynaud's. So if you're not familiar with Raynaud's, your audience, it's an autoimmune condition where you don't get enough blood flow to your extremities. So you get really cold fingers and toes. For me, it was more my fingers than my toes, but to the point where sometimes when you're expo exposed to cold temperatures, maybe I'm grabbing like a cold can of something or I do a um, like a, ice, a, a polar plunge, then the blood flow starts to go away from the fingers and it turns extremely white and purple and like you're like almost like your fingers get crippled. It's a very ugly and, and it feels ugly and looks ugly effect. So um, combine the first 24 years of my life eating like crap and being addicted to drugs and video games with the fact that I had eight silver fillings, silver amalgam fillings in my mouth for 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. And silver fillings uh, contain, each filling contains 50 to 55% mercury, which is a super toxin. And that mercury was in my tooth, vaporizing, going into my brain and getting locked into my hypothalamus pituitary, creating just systemic inflammation. 
Combine that with the old house I lived in in Miami had hidden black mold. So I was getting beat up all over the place. And of course, I start like doing some researching and investigating, like, why don't I feel well? I'm doing keto, I'm doing CrossFit, I'm doing all these things, but I still didn't feel well. And it turns out it was in my mouth and it was in my home. So I got my fillings safely removed from a biological dentist here in Miami, which is very important. If you have fillings, make sure you go to a biological holistic dentist, not just a regular dentist. And then I uh, moved out of my house because I, was, I didn't want to even live there, even though the house got remediated. So I had to go through a whole heavy metal detox, a whole mold protocol. And that, that's what I share that because that's what really triggered that autoimmune condition. So mm. my autoimmune condition, uh, Raynaud's, was really bad. I was getting flare-ups almost every single day. I remember I was in uh, Washington State and I polar plunged into this, snow, it's called Snow Lake Mountain. And I almost lost my fingers. Honestly, I, I, everything was white all the way to like my forearm. And I didn't realize it was going to be that severe jumping in a body of water like that. That was almost ice. I had to find hikers to let me borrow a lighter and hold it underneath my hands to get the blood flow back. I really thought I was going to lose my fingers. And that, that was years ago, right? So I wanted to experiment with carnivore. And I, I've heard so many anecdotal stories from my students and from people online about what it does for autoimmune. And my autoimmune had gotten so much better since I detoxed the mercury and got out of the mold exposure. But I was still getting some flare-ups every day, every other day, especially if I was exposed to something cold. It was improving, but too slow for me. So I did 40 days of carnivore, carnivore where I did nothing but meat. And I did a $3,500 lab panel where I did all my thyroid markers, inflammatory markers, etc. But also, I wanted to see how I felt with my autoimmune with carnivore. And out of those 40 days, I only had two carnivore, uh, two autoimmune flare-ups, Raynaud flare-ups, the entire 40 days, which was like a breakthrough for me because I, I hadn't experienced that in so many years. I was getting flare-ups constantly. So it really like had all these light bulb moments going on for me. And now, personally, I revisit carnivore three or four times a year while I'll do it for 30 days. And my Raynaud's have improved tremendously where to this point, I probably get a flare up like every three months or so, like one flare up every three months. And it's usually caused from like mental stress than anything else. So that's just a perfect example that your lifestyle could change these genes in your favor. That is so incredible. I feel like this conversation was meant to be because one of my friends has what you just described and no one knows mm. what's happening to her and she's vegan. So oh, yeah. I'm sharing this episode with her immediately as soon as it's done. So when it comes to carnivore, you hear that you can get explosive diarrhea if you, if you start it the wrong way. So how do you ease into carnivore if you're only cycling in and out of it a couple times a year? Like how do you start carnivore with avoiding the toilet? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, you're right. Like if you're not going from a keto sort of approach to carnivore approach, chances are you're going to get the disaster pants as Dave Asprey calls it. You're going to run to the bathroom. So um, the name of the game is the liver. The liver produces bile. Bile is important for detoxification, but bile also breaks down fat. It's like a detergent for fat. So obviously when you do carnivore or even keto, you're going to increase your dietary fat and protein that liver needs to produce enough bile to break it down. And if you've been doing a, like a high carb diet and a lower fat diet for years, that liver can't keep up. And to Candace's point, you're going to be having, like, you're going to be running to the bathroom for days saying this is awful. So I would, I would transition slowly. Number one, uh, if you're going from a high carb, low fat to carnivore, have like a seven day transition where you're gradually getting into there. And then by day seven, you're full on carnivore. But number two, I would support the liver. And you could do that by taking something that has like digestive enzymes with ox bile in it. Bile salts are great for the liver. 
You could do things uh, for the liver like coffee enemas and um, castor oil packs are terrific. You just grab a castor oil pack and you put it, you put the castor oil in the pack, tie it around the right side of your rib cage where your liver is and go to bed with that castor oil pack that helps support the liver. So the name of the game is the liver. And let's say you're doing all this and you're still having diarrhea, uh, seven days, 14 days in, you're doing the castor oil, you're doing the ox bile. Then I would, the solution would be to have smaller meals more frequently. And this is the only time I would recommend that because I'm not a big fan of like frequent eating, but your liver needs to have less fat in one sitting and spread the fat out. So if you're doing like two or three big carnivore meals a day and you're still getting diarrhea, then have like five or six smaller meals until your liver adapts. And it'll adapt within a matter of like less than 30 days for most people. That's interesting too, because that was, everyone just knew you were supposed to have five small meals a day, the size of your fist and constantly be grazing. And looking back, that doesn't make sense because we were hunting and gathering and there was yeah. no consistent food ever. So how was our body designed to constantly be eating? That never made sense. And I remember when I was following that advice from some like meathead bro at the gym was the time where I was gaining weight. And I'm like, I'm working out five days a week and I'm working out hard. What is happening? I'm shoving food in my mouth all of the time and I don't need to be. Of course not. Yeah. I'm not hungry. Why am I eating this? You're so right. It, it's the quickest way to age yourself. Eat every two to three hours. And, it, and it's the exact opposite of what we've been taught by you know mainstream nutrition. I always tell people that if you want to age fast and anybody you know, eat every two to three hours. Constantly graze because you're going to raise glucose and insulin. You're going to start the digestive process. And here's a crazy stat. A colleague of mine, his name is Dr. Don Klum. He's worked with like different corporations and he did a, a patient population survey where he had hundreds of these patients write down and document how many times they were eating throughout the day. And our definition of eating was any time you started that, that digestive process and raise glucose and insulin. So by this definition, it could be a full meal or it could be the grazing. It could be the almonds, the kombucha, the protein shake, anything that raised glucose and insulin was categorized as a meal. And the average person in this study was eating 17 to 23 times per day, which is one of the quickest ways to gain weight and create insulin resistance and age yourself faster. So we're not designed for that. We're genetically hardwired for feasting and fasting, these feast famine cycles. And that's mm. where, you know, intermittent fasting comes into play, not grazing. That's not good for you. I want to get into fasting, but it's funny when you were talking about the role of bile and then being able um, to increase your liver health to break down the fat. My grandma, so she's from Japan and she would always kind of like smuggle stuff over that she wasn't supposed to when she went to go visit her family. And I remember she always had this glass vial of these tiny little silver beads in them. And anytime one of us was sick or vomiting or had like an upset stomach, she would try to get us to eat them. And then my dad would throw this fit and tell her not to. And I'd eventually as an, like as I got older, I'm like, what is that stuff you would always try to give us that dad didn't want you to and you always said was illegal, but you had, and it was bear bile. So she <laughs> would smuggle this stuff in from Japan because I guess, I don't know if it's still the case, it wasn't legal in the States allegedly. And uh, the bile was supposed to help break down whatever was in your stomach and it was taken from a bear. This is all from my grandma. So who knows if it's accurate or not, but that story just popped in my head and I haven't thought about that in like 20 years. So I'm like, I wonder if she's got that good bile. So if I do carnivore, I can just have some of those bear beads and I'll be fine. 
That is so fascinating. I never heard of bear bile, but hey, that makes total sense to me. I mean, there's ox bile, which is the most popular form in supplementation, but you know, bear bile, your grandma knew it before we all did. <laughs> Way she's, before ancient wisdom. Smart. Yeah, <laughs> ancient exactly. Wisdom. Ancient healing strategy right there. So talking about fasting, I knew this was going to come up. So I saved this. Um, it popped up on my Twitter feed. Do you know who Carnivore Aurelius is? Yeah, I yeah, I follow them. Yeah. yeah, half the time I'm like, I don't know if this is a parody or what it is, but I just <laughs> I enjoy the content nonetheless. So an article was posted today, and it says intermittent fasting, the celeb favorite diet followed by Kourtney Kardashian and Mark Wahlberg, may raise your risk of an early death by thirty percent. Studies tracked twenty four thousand Americans over forty from across the U.S. in nearly fifteen over 15 years compared to three one meal a day linked to 30% raised real risk of all-cause death. Skipping breakfast was linked to a higher chance of dying from heart disease. Yeah. So we would have to dissect that, right? Because yeah. here, here's the truth. If you could put fasting into a pill, I mean, they would be all over that. There would be so many studies. I'm putting that in quotation marks because studies could be manipulated so with this one, for example, like I would need to know, okay, what were they told what to eat during their eating window or they ate whatever they wanted? Because there's a difference between, you know, fasting and, and gorging yourself on inflammatory foods, mm -hmm. you know, versus fasting and eating the right way. Mm -hmm. And then number two, I, I would want to know, like, did they account for women versus men? Because they should be doing it differently. So there's a lot of moving mm -hmm. parts here. I would kind of dissect that. But I, I see this happen all the time. These headlines come out. And I, I do think it's because you can't put it into a pill. As a matter of fact, they're going to lose a lot of money when people start practicing fasting. And we could get into the science of it if you want. I, I love talking about fasting. But I would need to dissect how that study was done and kind of the different variables at play to get a good idea. Of yeah, I'd love to be because to my, I guess... What seems, especially for women, is that it would create a lot of stressor, like a biological stressor. And sometimes that's great. Like for our skin, for example, you want to create stress and trauma and then that that creates more growth. And that's how you regenerate collagen is by doing lasers and peels and retinol at night. So you actually are creating some kind of trauma. And mm -hmm. so not all stress is bad. Um, so I'm assuming that there's probably a fine line when it comes to fasting where you if you do it properly, it's not going to hurt your hormones, but especially as a woman, you want to make sure that you handle it delicately. hundred percent. Yeah. So here's, here's like kind of the pitfalls of fasting. It's gotten really popular the last few years. And it's funny because when I started talking about intermittent fasting and learning it and teaching it and, and posting about it, like in 2015, I was getting so much hate. People were telling me I was creating like eating disorders and you're telling people to starve themselves. And now it's a little bit more popular, so I don't get as much hate, but that there's still a little bit of, of that out there. But to your point, stress. Stress is only bad when your body does not adapt to it. Stress is so important and vital for health and longevity when you adapt to it. So there's something called hormesis. Are you familiar with hormesis, mm -mm. Candace? Yeah, hormesis is a really cool process. Most people are not familiar with it. So essentially it means... Apply a stress, adapt to it, you get stronger. Apply too much of a stress and you don't adapt to it, you get weaker. So the perfect example is exercise, right? If you have not worked out in months or years, you've been a couch potato and you go and you start to work out, let's say 30 minutes, three times a week, you rest in between each session, you're going to get stronger and healthier. But if you decide to go and work out and do CrossFit after being a couch potato for years, you're probably going to hurt yourself and get worse. So there's this hormetic ceiling 
we want to stay within that hormetic ceiling and different people have different ceilings, right? So let's say you do do the right dose of exercise, you stay within that ceiling, you adapt, and then you get stronger and that ceiling gets built up. But if you do too much stress, your body doesn't adapt. So fasting is the same thing. Uh, anybody who says you should not do fasting because it's a stress to your body, that's like saying you should never exercise because it's stress to your body. Mm -hmm. They're right and they're wrong at the same time. Mm -hmm. So to your point, you know, these micro needling, red light therapy, sunshine, um, cold plunging, these are all stressors. But if you adapt to it, you get healthier and stronger. Same thing with fasting. And when it comes to fasting, for sure, women need to do it differently than men. I have an entire chapter in my book, Keto Flex, chapter 12 is all about how women should do it, cycling women versus postmenopausal mm -hmm. women versus men. So I'll give you an example for the women who have a menstrual cycle. The week before their period, so about seven to 10 days preceding their, their bleed, their first bleed, that's the week to not practice fasting and not do keto. You want to build the hormone progesterone. So you do that by feasting and you do it with healthy carbs um, and not keto. And then once you, the period starts, you actually um, are more uh, inclined with your hormones to actually practice more keto and fasting. So those are like different variations right there. So the bleed week, great for fasting and keto. The week before the period, not so much. So there's always different considerations. And if you do it with your hormones instead of against it, it's so powerful. I mean, it raises human growth hormone. It lowers inflammation. It helps with thyroid health. A lot of people think you can't fast if you have a thyroid condition. That's not true. The right amount could help. So there's a lot of considerations there. It could be such a powerful tool. And look, our ancestors, they didn't distinguish. Uh, a famine was a famine, right? Mm -hmm. So women had to go through the famine just like men and were genetically hardwired. Every a single 20, uh, 30 to 70 trillion cells in our body are gen genetically hardwired for these feast famine cycles. It's an amazing process and uh, your hormones actually become more optimized when you practice fasting the right way and the right dosage. So when it comes to being mindful of those stressors, especially when it comes to women's hormones, and we mentioned exercise also as a stressor, are you in favor of working out based off of where you are in your cycle as a woman, like so different stages would have different intensities. Something might be more of a gentle recovery, like a mm -hmm. gentle yoga, Pilates, and something's more heavy weights. And sometimes it's more just take some time off. Yeah. Great question. Um, a hundred percent, right? Yeah. So days six through days 13. So I categorize that as like six days after the first bleed days, six through day 13. Um, on average, are the days where women have the highest amount of testosterone. That would be the week where you do more strength training. You're going to have more confidence too. So you might do things where like you feel more bold, like speak on stage for you, Candice. Could, that could be a good week for you. And then the week before the period or the same week where you don't practice fasting and you don't do keto mm -hmm. is more yoga, a light exercise, et cetera, more parasympathetic the week uh, of the bleed week where you do more fasting, you could do more HIIT training. So yeah, it'll be dependent on each week. And I know the, I'm giving you general kind of flows here. Every woman might, woman, woman might have a 26-day cycle, 32. I'm giving a 28-day cycle, for example, but the general rules still apply. You just have to kind of plug it into your unique situation. No, I love that. And I love that you're not so dogmatic with your approach with everything. Like a lot of it is the flexibility, which I think is key because I don't think that sticking to strictly carnivore for the rest of your life, unless you have to, is ideal. And I think 
a lot of us can get stuck. We start to identify with our diet. You see that a lot with the vegan community. And I think that it's so interesting that you went from being vegan to now promoting keto because it's like you just did a complete 180 or on the other side of the spectrum. So how were you able to have that conversation with yourself to be able or I don't know why you were vegan. So I don't know if there was like an ethical issue, but I'm assuming there was a little bit of a role with that. Yeah, it's a little bit of ethical. And then I read a book called The China Study many years ago. I didn't really understand it. So it kind of duped me into doing veganism. So I was duped. Yeah. So I guess, how were you able to not identify as your diet? Because you see that a lot in that community to be able to say, hey, this isn't serving my body in the best way and to be able to adapt. Sorry if that you can hear my husband's computer's ringing right now. I forgot to. Oh, I, I can't hear it. But oh, awesome. Good. <laughs> uh, it's, a gr- it's a good question. So in the beginning, I was not able to adapt. I was very... Uh, dogmatic. As a vegan in 2012, I was very dogmatic. I was telling all my friends, they're killing the planet and killing animals. You got to be a vegan. And you know, the, the truth was that I didn't feel that well. My hormones were off and I did it for 15 months straight. Even though it was very dogmatic, I knew something was off. You know, your intuition is your intuition. Like it knows more than your dogmatic approach, at least for me it was. So I did lab work and it showed that a lot of things were wonky. My testosterone was tanked and I just, everything was wonky. So at that point I wanted to figure out, all right, if the vegan diet is not for me, what is? And I started to look at what I call ancient healing strategies. These, these mean, these are nutrition and dietary or lifestyle strategies that have been around to stand the test of time. And keto is one of them. A lot of people think keto is new. It is not new. And I don't look at keto as a diet. I look at it as a metabolic process. And all of our ancestors did ketosis facts. They also did fasting. And when you fast, you go into ketosis. It's the only reason, not the only reason, it's one of the reasons why our ancestors survived is because of the ability to burn body fat and have that liver produce ketones so they could stay focused and alert to hunt and kill. If it wasn't for that, we probably wouldn't exist. So when I hear people say keto is stupid, that's like saying you know a metabolic process is stupid and it, it's not. But even when I did keto, I was still dogmatic. I was telling everybody they got to do keto, they got to do intermittent fasting. And eventually, I started to just become aware of the things I was saying for my community. And I started to realize that it's, there's no perfect diet. There's no, it, it's not about the diet. It's really about metabolic flexibility. That, that is more important than dogma. So when I thought about that when it comes to keto, I thought, okay, most people don't have metabolic flexibility, meaning they're just burning sugar, burning glucose. As a matter of fact, there was a study that came out in 2018 from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. 10-year study, over 8,000 people, and their goal in the study was to determine how healthy or how unhealthy is the adult American population. So they looked at blood pressure, BMI, different metrics, and their conclusion was 88% of American adults are metabolically unhealthy, metabolically inflexible. And that was before COVID. You know, it got worse after. So essentially, these people are in a keto deficiency. They need to burn fat and then go back to sugar. So I see the opposite, though, in the keto space. And I start to recognize this, that, all right, people went from burning sugar to burning fat, but now they're only burning fat. And they're like, keto forever, carnivore forever. I'm like, no, that doesn't make sense. Because our ancestors, yeah, they all did keto, but they also flexed out. When they had carbs available, they didn't say, like, we don't eat that, bro, we're keto. No, they (laughs) hate it, right? So I started to kind of put that together and I thought it's not about keto long term. It's about flexing in and out. And that's where I wrote the book, Keto Flexing. So I'm a big fan of keto, but not long term. I'm a big fan of carnivore, not long term. It's all about the metabolic flexibility, not not being dogmatic. 
So how do you flex out without putting on a ton of weight? Because I see that as a common complaint with someone that has a very rigid diet. It's if they're all keto, if they're all carnivore, if they're all whatever it is, as soon as they add something that their body's not used to, they immediately store it. Yeah. You know, there's a proper way to do it, right? So in in my book, Keto Flex, I have a four pillar approach. So pillar one is called adapt because it's getting the person fat adapted. Pillar two is called fast because it's it's implementing intermittent fasting strategies. Pillar three is called phase because we're phasing out these anti-nutrients and doing carnivore short term. And then we reach the flex approach. So to your point and your question, like how do you do it the right way? So there's different, I call rules in, in the um, book. So for example, there's a rule called the 511 rule. And this is great for postmenopausal women and for men to practice this flexing approach. So how it works is, it's a seven-day protocol. The five in this 511 rule is five days of intermittent fasting, like a 16-8 schedule, and then eating keto during your eating window. So you are in ketosis for five days. And then you have the first one, which is a 24-hour water fast, where you just go dinner to dinner, lunch to lunch, but you're doing a lot of fasting for a day. And then you have a flex day, which is one day out of the week. It could be any day where you're taking your carbohydrates over at least 100 grams to get yourself out of ketosis. You're not practicing fasting. You're you're feasting that day. And I've noticed actually the opposite of what people might think. People might think, isn't that going to cause me to store fat? Like, am I? Isn't I've done all this work to do keto, and now you're telling me to get out of it? Like, isn't that going to be a problem? But no, because it reminds the body that it's not starving. Mm. The number one priority for the innate intelligence, the human body, is survival. The body will do everything to survive. For example, here's something interesting, Candice. The mitochondria are arguably the most important thing to consider when it comes to health. It's not only just energy factory. That's my, There's an intelligence to the mitochondria. It acts as a surveillance system to identify threats. So the mitochondria are that important when it comes to survival that the cells that are most required for survival are the cells that have the most mitochondria. For example, most cells in the body have maybe a few hundred mitochondria in a single cell. There are regions in the brain cells that have over a million mitochondria because the brain is required for survival, to be alert, to be focused, to run from the predator or kill the predator. Then we have the eyeballs. Of course, that's required for survival. There's tens of thousands of mitochondria. And the ovaries have about 100,000 mitochondria in them because survival. So I say all this because survival is the name of the game. If you've been doing keto for too long, You've taught your innate intelligence that you only have one source of fuel supply, and that is fat. And then it's going to want to slow the burning of that fat because you only have been burning fat. You want to preserve that for survival. But when you have a keto flex day, it's like you remind the innate intelligence, burn all this sugar for a day, and then you go back to fat and it ramps things up. So it actually does the opposite when you do it the right way. And there are different rules in the book for different people. That's fascinating. I definitely want to check that out. Before getting into mitochondria a little bit more, I heard you on a, a podcast talk about the difference between breast milk and formula. And this is going to be triggering and I'm going to say my opinion and I don't give a shit because I firmly believe it and I feel like all the evidence supports me. Breast milk is best. I know that's so annoying, but there is nothing better than the boob. And there are so many reasons. I guess before anyone attacks me, literally when there's two really cool things about when a baby's breastfeeding. One, if the mom literally just kisses the forehead, 
before she puts the baby on for a latch, that microbiome that's on the skin will actually change what comes out in the milk. Like the nutrients of the milk will change. Also that latch. So the saliva from the baby will also change the nutrients that are getting pulled from the milk. So if they're low in B or whatever it is, it'll actually take more of that out of the mom. So that's not happening with formula. Every time your baby latches, it is a custom cocktail of exactly what they need mm. in that exact moment. So you're not going to argue with me that formula is as good as breast milk. It's just not the truth. And I'm sorry if that hurts your feelings. I know there's a, a small percentage of women that cannot breastfeed and this is right. not directed towards them. But for the moms that don't try, I get so pissed because I'm like, you're starting that relationship off with your child from a very selfish place. Like you're already starting off with like there, you're breaking the bond. There's every time you're creating new neural pathways. Every time they latch, it's there's just so much, so much information on like why developmentally and nutritionally it is so important for babies. But what I didn't know was that you were saying a baby that is breastfed is like a fat burning machine, and then a baby that does formula is a sugar burning machine. And then that was fascinating. So I was curious what triggers that different protocol within the baby's metabolism? And then are there any longitudinal studies on that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, to your point, breastfeeding is the optimal way to do it. And then that'll trigger people because I'm a guy saying that and I'm not a woman, right? But it is the truth. And and like Candace said, we're not talking about the women out there who cannot actually produce the breast milk. I mean, we, we're not talking about you. We're talking about the moms out there who are not making the effort, right? Mm-hmm. Here's the truth. When babies are born into this world and they're naturally breastfed, they have so many benefits that you just explained and so many more that we'll never even realize. I mean, the oxytocin, the serotonin, all those neurochemicals that are good for the baby and the mom, also what's happening at the microbiome level to your to your point. But babies are actually in and out of ketosis. And there are three PubMed studies, and I could give them to you for the show notes to put in there. There are three PubMed studies that show that babies go in and out of ketosis because breast milk naturally has fat, protein, saturated fat, and cholesterol. And then the argument is this, but Ben, there's sugar and there's lactose and there's sugar in breast milk. And the answer is yes. And that baby is so efficient at using the sugar. It, it naturally goes in and out of ketosis. The question is why? Why are babies born into ketosis because the brain is mostly fat. It loves fat. And the baby's ability to go in and out of ketosis during um, its infancy helps with the neurological development of that baby's brain. So if you take the baby off of your breast milk, if you wean it off three months in and you put them on an infant formula, a lot of these infant formulas have seed oils and sugar and processed junk. And you take this naturally beautiful fat-burning baby and you turn them into a sugar burner right off the bat. And then it loses all those other amazing benefits that you just spoke about, Candice. So um, the longer, I mean, not the longer, but I know that my mom weaned me off at the two-year mark. And I, I think that's a good number right there. I don't know if you've seen otherwise, but two years is a good number to kind of wean them off. Did you um, look into that at all? What would be a good time frame? So everyone, every country has their own recommendations. Most of the world, it's two. The United States was 12 months until like this year. This year they revised it and then they switched it to two as well. Oh, interesting. And there's this really cool program and I'm not affiliated at all or paid for this, but I do want to put it in the show notes for anyone that's looking. It's called Milkify and it's this company out of Austin. And what they do is because your milk's only good in a freezer for about a year. If you do like a deep freezer, it might be able to go a little bit longer, but it's about a year that you can freeze it for. But what they do is you send in your frozen milk and they freeze dry it. So it's a 
supposed to lock in the exact nutrients so it's shelf stable for three years. So if you're like, I can't, oh, cool. I can't pump or I can't breastfeed for two years because that is a massive commitment. I I want to do one. Well, you can you know pump a ton right now as a reserve and then get it freeze dried and then you have all of that milk for the entire two year recommendation, which is so incredible. I'm like I love science when you see stuff like that. I'm like that That's is so, so cool. awesome. Yeah. I yeah. love to hear that. I didn't know about that. Milkify. Milkify. Cold. Yeah. Milk so for milk. any That's new great. moms or new dads, it is an incredible resource for you. That's an alternative to formula. Super cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. So um, there's two places I wanted to go. And I guess I'll maybe let you pick as far as your area of, of interest or whatever is gauging you. You mentioned brain health and how the brain is mostly fat. So I wanted to get into this new concept that Alzheimer's and dementia, what is now being called diabetes type three, which is fascinating, especially because we were so long, we were told for so long to worry about cholesterol. And a lot of our parents that are mm. our aging still have this dated model of low fat, low fat, low fat. Mm. And I get on my mom about this all the time. And I'm like, you are at the age where you need to be eating some fat, like put the butter in like the grass fed butter in your food, eat some of the fat with the steak, get the ribeye instead of the the filet, but you know, it, it's not being heard or absorbed at all. So that was the one. The other one goes to kind of back to mitochondria health and epigenetics and with the genes being able to turn on and off because there's this thing that's also becoming very mainstream, which is the supplementation of NMN and NAD plus as far as I forget what they're called, but they're the markers that affect the epigenetics. What is it? So the, yeah, those the telomeres. It, it not the, te- the no, not that. It starts with an S, I think. It's something that um it it decides whether and hmm. The sirtuins. Yes, that. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew yeah. you would know. Um, so whether or not those supplements have been tested, how do you find an authentic supplement that's not just baking powder? Um, but those are mm-hmm. the two places. Like that's my fork in the road. That I don't know where I want to go right now. Yeah, so let's talk about the epigenetics part, and then uh, we should have time to talk about cholesterol too. Um, so, I, I mentioned the innate intelligence several times during this interview, and I want to just explain kind of where that is and where I got that from. For many years, scientists and doctors believed that the innate intelligence, meaning the intelligence, the wisdom of your body, was your DNA, uh, and it's all about the DNA. And that premise kind of means like if you have cancer that runs in your family, or diabetes, or autoimmune disease. It's just bad luck, right? Obesity, genetic problem. It's just bad luck. It's not your fault was the premise. And then a gentleman named Dr. Bruce Lipton came on the scene who wrote yeah, a great book, Biology of Belief. And I interviewed him on my, on my podcast and he was sharing this. He destroyed that premise. So what he, did, what he did, he would look at cells and he would look at the DNA nucleus and look at all the other amazing things happening in that cell. And he wanted to find out where is that intelligence? Is it the DNA? Are we doomed by our, our genetics or is our DNA our destiny or is it something else? So he would remove the DNA nucleus from cells and observe what would happen next. And the cells went on to function just fine for months before it went into this apoptosis, which is programmed cell death. And he duplicated this over and over and over. And other scientists who challenged him duplicated and saw the same thing, which goes to show that it is not the DNA that is running the show. The intelligence is not your DNA. It's just a blueprint. Something needs to be, it needs to be told to turn on a gene or turn it off. So he wanted to determine, all right, if it's not the DNA, where is it? And then he would look at that cell membrane, which we spoke about earlier. He would remove the membrane, instant death. Remove the membrane, instant death. So it's that membrane. Life begins and ends in that membrane. That's what tells the DNA 
to turn on genes and turn off genes. So there's an environmental stimulus that tells the DNA to perform a certain job to, pr to produce certain proteins, and then that gene becomes expressed. But it starts with the environmental stimulus. So that could mean the food you eat, the thoughts you think, the supplements you take, it, it all is an environmental stimulus. The toxins around you, that's what's determining whether or not genes are getting turned on or turned off. So the great news is that your genes are not your destiny. A skilled poker player might be dealt a bad deck of cards, but a skilled poker player will become victorious. They'll know how to use those cards. So if you have a bad family history, that doesn't really mean much. Dr. Bruce Lipton believes that 99% of all disease is epigenetics, which literally means above the gene. Mm -hmm. It is communicating with that gene, and that's the external environment. And the most important thing here, it, I believe, is that Dr. Bruce Lipton has proven that your thoughts have a frequency that have the ability to penetrate your cell membrane and tell your DNA to produce certain proteins, good or bad. So it's a if it's a negative thought, it's going to produce inflammatory proteins. If it's a positive, loving, grateful, abundant thought, your DNA produces anti-inflammatory proteins. So if the average person has 60,000 thoughts per day, which they do, that means we have 60,000 opportunities to put the body in this anti-inflammatory healing state every single day. That is the greatest biohack that I could ever share on, on your show here. So in, in a nutshell, like we have control over those genes. It doesn't control us. Mm -hmm. No, that's so beautiful. And how do you... I read all of the things. I, I love Bruce Lipton. I love Joe Dispenza. And it's almost a curse because I know the negative implications of automatic negative thoughts and negative self-talk and finding yourself in this rumination or a cynical perspective. What are practices that you do or that you give some of your clients when it comes to snapping out of it and being able to reframe and look at it positively? Like, we're not going to do that today. We're going to break this negative habit and we're going to do something positive. Yeah, it's a very important question. Well, I mean, your environment determines those thoughts. Your thoughts determine your actions. Your actions determine your results. So you would have to clean up your environment for sure. But let's talk about something practical. You mentioned supplements. You mentioned like NMN and different supplements out there. There is another supplement that also extends those sirtuin genes, like the sirt one gene, and it, and it, and it helps protect the, the telomeres. And it's anti-aging. It's fat burning. Speaking of Dr. Joe Dispenza, uh, he did brain scans on individuals going through his seminars. And when they took this vitamin called vitamin G, he saw 1,200 chemical reactions take place instantaneously that put their body, their brain in this anti-inflammatory state. He saw dopamine, serotonin, GABA, all these amazing chemicals. So I see you writing something down. And I know a lot of people are listening. They're like, okay, where do I get vitamin G? Is it on Amazon? Is it at Whole Foods? So vitamin G is the practice of gratitude. I call it vitamin G because it's that powerful. And no, it's free. You don't have to go to the store to get it. But what you appreciate, it appreciates. I mean, my shirt has a pill, a bottle right here. Oh, so I love it. Is yeah. that yours? Like That's mine. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll send you one. By I way. would I love one, one, please. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you one. So I'm a big believer in it. A lot of people hear, and I lecture on this on stage because it, even when I go and I speak at keto events, I talk about this because it's everything. What you appreciate, appreciates. And I don't care if you think it's silly. This is a universal law. If you think gravity is not real, you know, what happens if you drop a pen, even if you don't believe it, you see that it is real. Same thing with gratitude. There's a part of the brain called the reticular activating system, the size of your pinky, it's in your brain stem. 
And it's there because it's the selective seeking mechanism. If you didn't have it, your brain would short circuit. There's millions of different stimulation. You need to filter out what's not important. It's all for the sake of survival, going, going back to that point. So when you buy a, um, if Candace goes to the mall and she buys a, a beautiful red dress, what, what, are your, what are your favorite brands, by the way? Let's choose one. Favorite brands? Oh, God. Yeah. I don't know if I have Clothing a favorite. Brands. Do you have any? No, I don't know if I have one. I'd like go okay. to like local places, so I don't know. Okay, so it's a, a specific local shop. This is from Candace Whole Foods, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So let's say you go to a local shop and it has like this custom red dress that that's like so custom, it's unique and you love it and you buy the dress and all of a sudden you start going, you're wearing it and you start shopping at other places. You notice other, other women have that dress. Did they all buy it because you bought the red dress? The answer is no, they were always there, but now the RS kind of sees it. No, they definitely did because I'm very influential. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. It's a combination of both. <laughs> um, so what happens is that the dresses were always there. Sorry, Candace. You're just now being able to see it. So with mm -hmm. gratitude, when you focus your attention on what you're grateful for, you get more things to be grateful for. When you focus on what's bothering you and all your problems, you get more problems. And that's exactly how gratitude works. So you change your environment, you practice vitamin G, really feel that vitamin G, do it every day. It's a daily practice. And all of a sudden, those thoughts will shift into um, things. Uh, the thoughts will shift into the thoughts that will manifest the ideal life that you want to create. Yeah, it's kind of creating new roadways. So if you're constantly on the anger highway, that's getting deeper yeah. and deeper and deeper and easier to be there. And it's easier to get ticked off at whatever happens. But if you kind of verge off into something else, and whether that's gratitude, love, appreciation, whatever you kind of choose that to be, it's like, oh, here's an off ramp. And every time you do that off ramp, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And eventually that becomes your highway instead of just this thing that you have to constantly be conscious of it'll just be second nature i'm not there yet but i do try, i do catch myself a lot so i'm proud of those small changes of just being a one percent better one percent better and to speak on the telomeres so for people that think your thoughts don't matter your feelings don't matter none of this affects your health there was a recent study that came out that said that boys that didn't have a dad in the home if the dad left before the age of 12, that their telomeres would shrink such, I think it was 12 or 13, and it was like right before puberty, that their telomeres would shrink such that their life expectancy was reduced by about 12 to 13%. So wow. yeah, it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. So your environment absolutely has a direct implication on your health, your longevity, your health span, um, and probably a lot of things that we don't even know yet. Oh, that's interesting. I want to see that study. And that was a great analogy about the highway. I, I totally agree. And look, I'm working on it myself. I wear my vitamin G shirt and there are times and it happens to all of us, but the key is to be aware of it and just short, shorten that curve, right? Where maybe in the past, maybe a month ago, you got angry about something and you stayed in that space for 30 minutes. Now it's just 10 minutes. You're in that space and you're shifting your energy, right? It's just a matter of like, being aware, Neville Goddard said, we are only limited by weakness of attention and poverty of imagination. And I mm -hmm. really believe that to be the case. So saying it's with gratitude, you just want to be aware. And when you find yourself in that negative space, uh, be aware of it and then shift your energy because where you shift that energy, it will expand. Yeah. I, I just love so much that you bring into your content like mindset and self-improvement and spirituality. Like it's not just calories in, calories out. It's not just yeah, this no. is the diet. It's it's so much more holistic than a lot of other approaches. And I forget who I was speaking with, but they were saying that a lot of the people that are were on that show, The Biggest Loser, I think it, mm. that was what it was. 
one, one, yeah. of, one of those shows. The Biggest maybe, Loser. Was yeah. it you maybe? I don't forget who was telling me the story. Maybe. I talk about it often, but maybe. I don't yeah, know. It's these people that lose a massive amount of weight yeah. and then they gain it right back. And I had yeah. no idea because you never saw that. So it's like, oh, all these people, men and women got super healthy and fit and good for them. Even if they didn't win, they're in such a better position. It's like, no, they gained it all back. And that's because like they obviously had the tools they had some of the best people in the world teaching them what to do how to do it but their mindset wasn't caught up with everything else and their beliefs and their self-worth wasn't caught up to what where they needed to be um so yeah i i love that you incorporate all of that for your clients because it's it's investing in their their well-being long term thank you i i appreciate that and that that's the the majority of our results 95% will be mindset 5% strategy and i i love learning about mindset more than keto and teaching it more than keto. And to your point with the biggest loser, that, that was a big problem. They didn't change their psychology, but also perfect example that calorie counting doesn't work because they all gained the weight back. And we didn't hear about it because all of those participants had to sign different clauses that they couldn't speak about it in public, but mm -hmm. counting calories fails 99.9% of the time long-term. The problem is that it works short-term, but it confuses people. It's, it's about hormones, uh, not about calories. Mm -hmm. I know. I want to be aware of your time. So I don't know if we can get into that. The cholesterol? Yeah. I could talk I'd... like a couple minutes on it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to. Yeah. Yeah. You know, cholesterol, it's the most common question I get being in the keto space. I was just doing a live stream a couple hours ago and it's like, my doctor says my cholesterol is high. I've been doing keto. Mm -hmm. I, I always say, Congrats. It's like cholesterol is so important. It's vital for your sex hormones. It's vital for your liver. It's vital for your health, your brain, excuse me. More people, I don't know if you knew this, Candice, but this is from Harvard. I believe it was 2008. More people die from heart disease with normal to low cholesterol than with high cholesterol. I interviewed a world renowned researcher on nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is a very important molecule that the body produces that helps vasodilate. Uh, our blood vessels. So it helps lower blood pressure, or I should say optimize blood pressure. It'll lower higher blood pressure, helps prevent heart disease. And he said, if you have a total cholesterol, men or women, 200 or lower, you are at risk of heart disease because it blocks the binding of nitric oxide and it doesn't allow it to vasodilate. So it creates more of a rigid artery. Mm. He didn't say over, he's more concerned under. I agree. So we total cholesterol on your lab report doesn't mean anything. It's about the HDL, the LDL, and the particles of those LDL, and then your triglycerides and inflammatory markers. And then you could kind of see if it's a problem or not. And if all else fails, you could just go get a calcium score done, which is a, a, it's a very easy test to do. And it'll tell you if you have any calcium built up in your arteries. And then you could decide if there's some changes that need to be made. But it's essential. And I know your mom doesn't eat it or just kind of avoids it, but we've been brainwashed to believe that, but it's not true. And then with the calcium buildup, is that something that you can fix with a supplement? Because I forget, was it D or K as far as the supplement that helps with the calcium actually going to your bones instead of leaching? Yeah, D with K. Yeah, D so vitamin K. D3 with K2. Um, now, most conventional doctors will tell you that if, let's say you have a calcium score of like 300, I mean, zero is optimal. You want to have zero, but let's say it's 300. They're going to tell you that you can't lower that score, but I've done some experiments with my students and they have lowered it. And there's some studies that show you can lower it. It's going to be more than just vitamin D3 and K2, but that is a good idea, but it can be lowered. But I would recommend anybody listening or watching over the age of 40, maybe over the age of 35, go get a calcium score and see what your levels are at. Hopefully it's a zero. Oh, I'm going to write that down too. Yeah. 
Ben, this was incredible. I could keep you on for hours, but I'm not going to. I will have to um, invite you back. This was You are just yeah. a wealth of knowledge. So thank you so much for sharing everything with me and the listeners. Before you take off, can you tell everyone where they can follow you, how they can support you, and any projects that you're working on? Yeah, thank you, Candace. You're a great podcast host from one to another. It's like these conversations, they, they just flow very easily because we're both hosts. We understand how to kind of go back and forth. So I love what you're doing. It was an honor having you on my show. I'd love to do round two on both of both podcasts. So my podcast is called Keto Camp Podcast. And to Candice's point, and hopefully I made the point today, it's not just about keto. We talk <laughs> a lot more than just keto, but camp with the K, uh, Keto Camp. If you're watching, you can see my hat. It says camp with the K. And then my website is benazadi.com. You could find all of my social media there and my book as well. Awesome. And I will link all of that below for everyone else. Ben, again, thank you so much. Thank you, Candice. Talk to you soon. That's it for this week's episode of Chatting with Candice. Before you go, if you could leave that five-star review and make sure that you hit like and subscribe. I'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. <laughs>